Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of the conference plenary address by Professor Marion Lyons from NUI Maynooth. Professor Lyons has published extensively on Franco-Irish relations and on Irish migration to continental Europe in the early modern period, as well as on other various aspects of Irish history. Her paper is entitled The Variegated Irishness of the Irish in 17th Century Europe. My intention in choosing the theme of this paper was to broaden the horizon of Tudor and Stuart Ireland beyond the confines of the island, to encompass the narratives of those thousands of Irish who, although they left in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, continued to identify and engage with Ireland as their, and also with their compatriots abroad. From their continental vantage point, many continued to make interventions which would shape the course of events back home but they also made a highly significant contribution in fashioning a new image of Ireland and a modern concept of an Irish nation in the guise of a Catholic nation. And it's this particular dimension that I want to discuss with you this evening. Because I want to examine how the variegated Irishness of these emigres evolved into a more broadly defined, unique Irish identity, I will largely confine my attention to the first 40 years or so of the 17th century. I do so because in many respects these early decades in which Ireland was largely peaceful represents a particularly formative phase in the history of the Irish in Europe when competing emigres of various traditions embraced opportunities to give expression to their distinct shades of Irish identity within their new environs abroad. As successive waves of emigrants from Ireland flooded the ports of Spanish Flanders, France and Spain, particularly in the wake of the Kinsale debacle, Irish colleges mushroomed and the network spread as far east as Prague. Irish noblemen and their families and followers descended upon Spain, often rather belligerently expecting recognition gratitude, financial support and employment from the Habsburg monarchs, while thousands of unwelcome Irish beggars teamed the streets of Paris, Madrid, Nantes and La Coruña. In that short, fleeting window of opportunity during the period circa 1600 to 1641, as these growing populations of Irish clerics, soldiers, nobles, merchants and writers clambered to get their foot on the ladder in their host societies, many sought to do so at the expense of their compatriots. In such an intensely competitive and still unfamiliar environment, the pressure was on for individuals and groups to use every strategy available to them in order to secure their share of royal, aristocratic or ecclesiastical patronage. Equally, there was a palpable urgency driving their efforts to exert the decisive influence over the direction that politics and religion would take back home in Ireland. This period was also, of course, characterised 
by comparatively frenetic and ambitious scholarly endeavour by Irish clerical and lay writers, all of whom seized the opportunity to present a new, positive, modern image of Ireland and of Irish Catholicism. Notwithstanding the infamous disputes between Franciscans and Jesuits, religious and seculars, Old English and Old Irish, over how best the Irish mission should be conducted, there was nonetheless a palpable optimism and zealous commitment to that cause within all of the nascent Irish colleges. And this was particularly intense in the 1620s and 30s, when, as Brian McCourta and indeed earlier Anya Hensi have shown, there were real and encouraging signs of progress in terms of reform and revival of the Catholic Church back home in Ireland. Furthermore, while the embers of their loyal service to Spain at the time of the Armada and at Kinsale flickered in the minds of the emigres and, more importantly, of the Spanish monarch, there was also still hope that Spain could be persuaded to support a military campaign to restore the old political order in Ireland. So long as King Philip III could be made to feel that he had to honour an obligation to those Irish who lost everything after Kinsale, there was the opportunity for noblemen to have their noble status recognised and pensions granted, while their followers could legitimately expect to be admitted to the Spanish army. However, with the outbreak of the 1641 uprising in Ulster and the ensuing Confederate and Cromwellian wars, the outlooks of both Old Irish and Old English emigres on Ireland and also on their future in continental Europe changed profoundly. Much of this earlier idealism, pioneering zeal and sense of empowerment to shape the political and religious future of Ireland gave way to a more pessimistic perspective on Ireland's prospects and their possible role therein. Given the politically, socially and culturally complex character of late 16th century Ireland and the consequent diversity of the emigrant population, it was inevitable that once they were out of Ireland, the processes of awakening and defining new identities would spark tensions, rows and full-blown conflicts within the ranks of what we, and importantly, most early modern continental bureaucracies loosely term the Irish in Europe. For the purposes of this paper, my focus will mainly rest on the emigre population in the Spanish monarchy in the first half of the century. I will only make passing reference to France, partly for reasons of time, but also because the Irish who arrived there in the early 1600s were, by and large, beggars and redundant soldiers who did not engage with the Breton and French authorities to the same extent or with the same success as their compatriots who arrived in the Spanish territories. For those who migrated to Spain and Spanish Flanders in particular, their efficacy in articulating their Irishness was especially important in the scramble to gain a position, be it as a member of the Irish regiment or one of the Irish college communities or one of Spain's military orders. Rival factions within the Irish emigre population lobbied King Philip III and his councillors for pensions and titles, for military assistance, 
for supremacy in dominating the Irish regiment in Spanish Flanders, for support in controlling the nascent Irish colleges, and by extension, overall dominance in directing the Irish Roman Catholic mission. In an environment in which we have to remember they were only still a tiny minority, Old Irish and Old English negotiated the labyrinthine Spanish bureaucracy to compete, often unscrupulously, for the limited resources available to them. Motivated by pressing material, spiritual, cultural, political and ideological concerns, in the early 1600s, both Old Irish and Old English laymen and clerics at local level and at the Spanish court in Madrid played a delicate balancing act in projecting their Irish identities to the Spanish. Whilst on the one hand they presented themselves as Irish in a broadly defined sense, they also drew explicit attention to their cultural and ideological differences, their variegated Irishness, if you like. They did so, of course, in the hope of demonstrating their own group's particularly particular worthiness as beneficiaries of whatever patronage office, honours, privileges, etc. could be garnered. This spectrum of Irishness is elaborated in an intelligence document written by the Gaelic historian Philip O'Sullivan Bear and presented to the Council of Spain by Florence Connery in 1618. O'Sullivan Bear detailed how the Irish maintained distinct identities as Old Irish, Old English and a third mixed group both in Ireland and on the continent. He also claimed that these differences were so well known to the Spanish authorities that the latter took them into account when dealing with the Irish colleges, the military and the lay communities. At the same time, as Claire Carroll has argued, O'Sullivan Bear's intention in compiling this treatise was in fact to present a united front for the Irish, He certainly stressed how, and I quote, many of all three sorts of Irish do excellent services to his majesty. And yet, despite this, and within the same treatise, O'Sullivan Bear showed his own true sectional colours by claiming stronger aristocratic credentials for the ancient Irish, who he claimed were descended from ye Spaniards. Such polemical tracts and propaganda treatises combined with the deluge of memorials submitted to the Spanish king and grandees of the court by Irish emigres seeking pensions, compensation for their losses in the Nine Years' War and admission to the Spanish military orders all threw into sharp relief the varied and complex character of the Irish emigre population, which of course merely reflected the divisions and tensions of the very society that they had left behind. Whilst, as we will see, a handful of emigre clerical and lay scholars made halting attempts to define and articulate an ideologically coherent Irish identity, an Irish nacio, which would unite all Irish Catholics at home and abroad, these simultaneous disputes in which hardline figures on both sides vied for limited resources and wrestled for dominance in military and clerical circles only served to complicate and indeed to stall in many respects that unifying process. 
Ultimately, these internal quarrels among the Irish and Spain also had the effect of damaging attempts made by the Habsburg government to form a single Irish party with whom it could work to achieve a common purpose. That is, the future incorporation of Ireland in the monarchia, the recovery of England from for Catholicism and an alliance with Spain. But since 1586, when the first mass exodus of Irish military to the Low Countries occurred following the Desmond Wars in Munster, a military community had formed there in which independent Irish companies under the command of Irish captains were ultimately consolidated into an Irish regiment in 1605. Bronya Henry's study of this first Irish emigre military community on the continent highlights the polarities that existed between Old Irish and Old English elements within the emigre population and the many ways in which they each gave expression to their variegated Irishness. Throughout the 1610s, 20s and 30s, the O'Neills and the O'Donnells, of course, remained the focus of Old Irish emigre hopes for a military expedition to Ireland, which would restore them to their property and bring about a restoration of the Catholic Church. At the same time, deep-seated ideological divisions existed between Old Irish and Old English factions in the monarchy and France uh, as well, uh, over, among other things, their respective relationships with the English monarch and their vision for the Irish Catholic mission. But one thing that the majority of these migrants who arrived on the continent in the late 16th and early 17th centuries appear to have had in common was a belief that their stay would only ever be temporary. In 1616, it was said that, quote, all the Irishmen in the service of Spain, with the exception of O'Neill and O'Donnell and their kindred, may be brought home by giving them some means to live on. They love their country, few of them have money abroad, and they have no property there. Now, this short-range vision was to profoundly shape their consciousness of the relevance and also the nature of their Irish identity. Equally, after the disappointment associated with the turmoil in Ireland in the 1640s and 50s, many then resigned themselves to living out the rest of their lives on the continent. That necessarily prompted a reassessment of their future options and, by extension, of their Irishness. An acute sense of the immutability of their Irish identity is emblematically articulated by Art O'Neill, nephew of Hugh O'Neill, and an old Irish colonel in the Flanders Army, who even as late as 1662 still evidently regarded his stay abroad as short-term and enforced. When asked for his papers in that year, O'Neill indignantly and condescendingly replied, The rank of my family is so well known in the Kingdom of Ireland that it has never been necessary for me to keep any papers whatsoever, much less bring them to Spain, where I came only to serve in the wars. He went on to impress upon what you can imagine was the, the cringing, lowly bureaucrat that in the Kingdom of Ireland it is the custom to employ chroniclers who have the duty and obligation to keep a record of all noble families and their descendants. 
An equally telling indication that the vast majority of old Irish soldiers serving in continental armies in the early 1600s believed their stay abroad would only be temporary was their refusal, perhaps failure, or perhaps inability to learn Spanish, Flemish, French, or other local languages. Now, given their number, it was possible for Gaelic-speaking soldiers to remain in self-contained companies or subgroups within companies, aloof from soldiers of other nationalities, at arm's length from their non-Gaelic-speaking officers, and at least in the early stages, apart from the populace on their host countries. For instance, in the mid-1580s, the Irish at Deventer were said to have, quote, spoken unintelligible language and could not have any intercourse with the local inhabitants. As late, though, as 1630, the Marquez de Atonia informed King Philip IV that while the Irish were, quote, good people and attached to the Spaniards, their captains defraud them of their pay. For as with people who do not know that Gaelic language, the Spanish captains cheat them, meaning the Irish, easily. It should be noted that this reluctance to learn the local language was by no means limited to military emigres. It was also demonstrated by Irish merchants who had been living and trading in Spain for a period of over 10 years in the 1630s. A great many of the old Irish and old English who entered the Irish colleges of France and Spain and joined the military companies in Spanish Flanders reinforced their respective identities by maintaining intimate connections with their kin groups back home in Ireland. In the early 1600s, old Irish soldiers, many of whom had lived in Spanish Flanders for several decades, and many others, who indeed, who had been born there, demonstrated intense consciousness of their intimate and unbroken connection with Ireland and with their ancestors. One very tangible way in which they expressed this identification was through appropriating titles that referenced the lands and birthplaces of their forefathers back home in Ireland. And of course this was common practice in, amongst Irish emigres in Spain too. And so in 1616 we find three Irishmen, Captain William de Burgo, Thomas de Burgo and Don Cornelius Kelly, all serving in the Irish regiment in Flanders, signing themselves respectively Lord of Bellatory, Lord of Clonaloe and Ballynanin, and Lord of Thibainan. All right, so bona fide, completely Irish, despite living for so many decades uh, in Spanish Flanders. As we'll see a little later, the Spanish historian Oscar Recchio Morales talks about the emigres having to strike a delicate balance between, on the one hand, Irishness, and the other, Spanish Irishness, in the 17th century. However, in the case of one old Irish soldier in Spanish Flanders, Dermot O'Malloon, we are left in no doubt about how he defined his Irishness. O'Malloon's tombstone inscription, dated 1639, first and foremost identified him as Baron of Glen O'Malloon. For him, this clearly superseded the many other more recent titles and distinctions conferred upon him during his years of service in the household of the Archduke Albert of Spanish Flanders. Further evidence of their sense of affinity with Ireland and with their kin group is found in the old Irish and old English soldiers' preoccupation with documenting their ancestry and genealogy. 
Even though the military community in Flanders comprised an amalgamation of cohesive kin groups divided along Old English and Old Irish lines, all elements within that community treated the Franciscan College at St Anthony's in Louvain as a touchstone through which they maintained their intimate connection with Ireland and gave expression to their Irish identity. Indeed, one finds the same pattern in the case of Irish colleges across Spain, France and Bohemia. And this symbiotic relationship is evidenced by the fact that many students of St Anthony's also served as soldiers in the uh, Irish companies and regiments in order to pay for their studies. Individual soldiers frequently made private donations to the Franciscans and organised major collections within their companies to help fund, for instance, the construction of St Anthony's College and Chapel. For their part, quite apart from ministering to the émigré military community, in purely practical terms, the Franciscans reciprocated by assisting Irish soldiers in getting pensions, promotions and honorary titles. But far more important than any of these associations were the close family bonds between the two émigré groups, military and clerical. In the period 1600 to 1610, for instance, 23 of the total 28 Irish named as clerical students in the Archdiocese of Malines, which incorporated Louvain, had either a brother or a close relative serving in the Irish regiment at that time. Also significant was Philip III's establishment of the Irish regiment in Spanish Flanders in 1605 under Henry uh, O'Neill's command. This had the desired immediate organisational effect of drawing, quote, together all dispersed Irish in Flanders and Spain, unquote, but it also contributed to their heightened consciousness of themselves as members of a distinct nation, which is a term used by contemporaries in this context. Furthermore, at a time when Louvain was the intellectual centre of Northern European Counter-Reformation, this Irish military community's wholehearted embrace of an especially militant Counter-Reformation ideology was important, not only in shaping the direction and ideological tenor of the Irish mission, but also in honing and promoting the modern idea of an Irish nacio in both Irish emigre circles and back home. Of course, the most iconic demonstration of the eventual fusion of the Irish Franciscan and military emigre's identities and agendas of all came about with Owen Roe O'Neill's sailing from Dunkirk to Ireland in 1642 in a frigate called the St Francis, which was purchased through the good offices of the Franciscan Order and dispatched under the protection of the Flanders Armada. I want to broaden our focus now to concentrate more on Spain itself, where, particularly in the early decades of the 17th century, Irish provincialism and the complex concept of Ireland as, quote, a nation of nations was very much in evidence amongst the Irish emigre population. But while on the one hand we see intense rivalries being played out between Gaelic Irish and Old English, particularly vigorously within and between the Irish colleges, one can also trace the emergence of a very distinct brand of Irish identity in those decades. Resting on the aforementioned delicate balance between Irishness and Spanish Irishness, emigres managed to preserve a strong sense of their Irishness 
which gave rise to their being afforded a uniquely privileged position within the monarchy. Out of their need for an incontrovertible, legitimising basis for their refugee status, the Irish at the Spanish court in Madrid in the early 1600s were quick to formulate a distinct political ideology, to use Oscar Recchio Morales' term, explicitly aimed at eliciting support from the Spanish monarchy. They rationalised their resort to Spain in terms of its being a deliberate strategy, aimed at creating a problem of conscience for the Catholic king, owing to the devastating losses that they had sustained in fighting for him in the Kinsale debacle. Claiming recompense and recognition for the Spanish crown's alleged transgression of international law, the Irish emigres masterfully therefore converted the Spanish Sirocco de Irlanda or age to Ireland into the king's duty to the Irish people. Three rather hackneyed claims constituted the basis of Irish emigres' shared political ideology, namely their supposed Iberian origin, centred on the Milesian myth, their military service to the Spanish crown, and lastly, their unwavering adherence to the true faith, Catholicism. The consistency and uniformity with which both Old Irish and Old English elements within the monarchy embraced this legitimising political ideology was crucial in forging a common Irish identity. Of course, there were strong material, bureaucratic and ideological imperatives for doing so. Right from the time of their arrival in Spain, members of all social strata within the Irish emigre group consciously, repeatedly, individually and collectively used this common ideology to justify their demands of the Spanish king. The material rewards to be gleaned from embracing that ideology which was infinitely greater than those available to the Irish in France at the time, ensured that it served as a very effective unifying force, helping to build up internal solidarity bonds and also to soften some of the divisions that existed between émigrés when first they had arrived from Ireland. Indeed, the émigrés' effectiveness in using this ideology for personal advantage was very evident in the early 1600s, when the Spaniards, I think in desperation, rather cynically expressed surprise that they could hardly find an Irishman in Spain who hadn't assisted Juan de la Aguila at the Battle of Kinsale. <laughs> now also crucial in for- forging an overarching Irish identity in Spain was the fact that unlike in France, where the émigrés had no nobility or high-ranking clergy comparable to, France, to Florence Conry to act as advocate at court on their behalf, In Spain, they not only had Conry, who was there for the crucial decades down to 1629, but also the sympathetic Spanish Viceroy of Galicia and the Spanish ambassador to the Stuart court to plead their case. Whilst acknowledging the important roles played by these canny individuals, Oscar Recchio Morales believes that these were in fact only frontline figures involved in promoting a grand and complex strategy which was already being subscribed to by the wider population of Irish emigres in Spain. The Spanish bureaucratic machine, the most advanced in early modern Europe, also contributed to the evolution of a unique Irish identity. 
At the beginning of the 17th century, while the Spaniards were familiar with the most eminent families in Ireland, they had only a vague notion, as you might expect, about the rest. Consequently, recording the identity of thousands of émigrés pouring into their ports was simplified by bureaucrats down to the lowest common denominator, namely the designation Irish. Over time, this practice undoubtedly pushed the Old Irish and Old English to adopt the label Nation Irlandese assigned them in the ledgers of the Habsburg Church and State. Moreover, the regularity with which many Irish emigres had encounters with this Spanish bureaucracy also proved significant. If one wanted to instill in an emigre a heightened consciousness of his identity, his legitimacy, Catholicism, purity of blood and nobility, there was hardly a more effective way of doing it than repeatedly insisting that that individual produce testimonies for each of these aspects of his identity. The Spanish authorities' insistence that all noblemen seeking recognition of their aristocratic status and or admission to the Spanish military orders had to present several supporting testimonials meant that nobles, high-ranking clergy from home and from Irish colleges, together with military officers and well-established Irish emigres living in Spain, became drawn into an increasingly dense web of overlapping alliances, entwining Old English and Gaelic Irish, which served to reinforce their sense of collective identity as Irish. Even the humblest rank-and-file soldier had to become enmeshed in this web to survive. Thus, the old system of clientage, to which the Old Irish in particular were so accustomed at home, was transferred, largely intact, to Spain and Spanish Flanders. In this way, the fabric of long-standing personal relationships based on family and regional loyalties, as well as social and economic dependence, was preserved in their new host society. The emigres were, therefore, in many respects, culturally predisposed towards making the transition to Ancien Regime Spanish society, which itself relied so heavily on hecuras personales, or service and unconditional loyalty to a protector. A remarkable feature of the emigres' forging and then protecting of their privileged identity within Spain was their success in compelling the Spanish crown to accept that the royal duty to the Irish did not expire on Philip III's death in 1621. In the long term, that coup ensured their enjoyment of exceptional privileged status in Spanish society. Now, of course, it would be utterly misleading to claim that Irish provincialism was not as strong in Spain during the early 1600s as it was everywhere else. We know that it manifested itself in the usual interprovincial rows in Spain's colleges and within the army of Flanders. Neither did these internal distinctions disappear overnight. Yet the rival camps appear to have been pragmatic enough to realise the damaging effects that their internal provincial disputes were having on the position of the Irish at court, and also their potential to jeopardise the considerable gains that they had managed to achieve down to that point on the strength of asserting their exceptional status as refugees. 
Following on from the wars in Ireland in the 1640s and 50s and resultant influx of thousands more Irish émigrés and the concomitant emergence of a new generation of Irish born abroad. By the mid-century, as the Irish settled in various regions across Spain, they came to think, them, to think increasingly of themselves as belonging to a national community. By the 1670s, the Spanish phrases Nación Irlandesa for the Irish group and de Nación Irlandés for individuals was being used and accepted by the Irish. They used these denominations in three senses. First, to distinguish themselves from Welsh, Scottish and English immigrants. Second, to present a unified front to the Spanish. And third, to give expression to their new self-consciousness of sharing a common identity as pesanos, a Spanish term also used by the Irish to identify themselves as, quote, fellow countrymen. We know that the variegated Irishness of clerics in Irish colleges on the continent was writ large in their infamous intra- and inter-institutional disputes. These bitter divisions were based not only on clashes between the traditional political and cultural concerns of their constituent groups, they also argued over the very role that they envisaged for their respective colleges in driving Catholic reform in Ireland. From 1602 onwards, Conry's disapproval of the Jesuit-run Irish College at Salamanca evolved into a comprehensive opposition to the Jesuit mission in Ireland and to the society's influence in the church in general. In early 1602, in a memorial addressed to Philip III, Conry asserted that Jesuit discrimination against students of Gaelic origin from Connacht and Ulster reflected the residual loyalty of the Old English to Elizabeth I and their suspect schismatic disposition. He also set out clear distinctions between the Gaelic Irish and the Old English students on five grounds, namely loyalty to the Queen, acceptance of Habsburg sovereignty, purity of blood of, of faith, wealth and suitability for ministry in the Irish church. And yet... It is singularly significant that Conry never refers to any racial distinctions between the two groups of Irish students. Presumably he, like O'Sullivan Bear and other scholars writing about their compatriots in the colleges, thought it wiser to minimise disclosure of the full extent of their internal divisions. By 1605, the Jesuits steadily clawed back most of the concessions made by the Spanish, Spanish monarchy to Conry, and the Irish colleges in Lisbon and Salamanca came under Jesuit direction. Against that backdrop of growing Jesuit domination over the Irish colleges in Iberia and increasingly formidable opposition from his old English clerical rivals at the, at the Royal Court at Madrid, Conry achieved a breakthrough in establishing St Anthony's with the intention of safeguarding theological orthodoxy and good pastoral practices on the Irish mission in line with his own particular vision. And so within the Spanish monarchia, therefore, the diverse identities of the clergy and religious could be accommodated. This process of forging a broadly defined inclusive identity for the Irish within the monarchia, which I've outlined, 
dovetailed with a more general drive within Irish literate circles to construct a modern image of Ireland and of its Catholic people. In this new wave of scholarship, strong emphasis was placed on highlighting positive features of the homeland that both Old English and Old Irish shared. Philip O'Sullivan Bear, for instance, depicted Ireland as a fertile country with an ancient population which was, quote, Catholic, civil and long-lived. Clerical scholars associated with the Irish colleges in Spain, too, made their contribution, continually promoting an image of Ireland as, quote, a fortunate island. In so doing, they joined scholars all over Europe in systematically demolishing the hackneyed negative image of the Irish that had been promoted by Cambrensis and others by juxtaposing them with modern, sophisticated and complementary depictions of the Irish as exemplars of religious perseverance in Europe. Animated by what they perceived as unjust treatment of their Catholic kinsmen at home, Old English and Gaelic writers on the continent set out, through their Renaissance-style studies in hagiography, history and martyrology, to publicise Ireland's Christian heritage. They did so in the hope of boosting the morale of all Irish Catholics by fostering a sense of collective identity and a spirit of unity uh, among all Catholics of Ireland, a Catholic nacio, which transcended traditional ethnic divisions. Alongside Thomas Messingham and David Roth, the Franciscans at Louvain, as we know, assumed a leading role in maintaining the momentum for Irish historical and hagiographical scholarship down to the early 1670s thanks largely to the vision, talent and persistence of Hugh Ward, Patrick Fleming, Michal O'Clary and John Colgan, among others. The Franciscans also engaged in behind-the-scenes preemptive attempts at persuading authors of commentaries on Ireland to excise any descriptions of the Irish people which were likely to offend or to give cause to rouse within the Irish emigre uh, population. I'm thinking there specifically of their um, attempts to have Thomas Carew's disparaging remarks about Ulster people uh, taken out of his uh, Itinerarum, which was published in 1639. Within the context of this wide-scale endeavour on the part of Irish emigre scholars of all backgrounds to fashion and propagate a new sense of Irish identity as an Irish Catholic nacio, A handful of these Gaelic language works printed at St Anthony's in Louvain made a groundbreaking contribution since they featured the earliest references to Ireland as a Catholic nation uh, to appear in Gaelic language texts. Although primarily religious texts, O'Holus' Catechism, Unwell Connor's Desiderius and MacAngle's Scahan were deeply imbued with political implications. According to Michal McCrath, These Gaelic scholars appeared to consciously play down the ethnic rivalry associated with the terms Gael and Gaul and instead adopted a new use of the term Eranyach in the hope of uniting the different Catholic groups from Ireland. In the 1610s, A. MacAngle referred to Ireland as a Catholic nation and in all he used the term nation 16 times in the Scahong. A sense of patriotism certainly motivated the Louvain scholars in producing these texts. MacAngle, for instance, expressed concern at how ignorant the people of our nation were about the nature of the sacrament of penance. 
As Mark Cable has remarked, it clearly offended MacAngle's sense of patriotic pride to see that every other Catholic nation possessed appropriate material to catechise congregations in their vernacular languages. In tandem with the publication of Gaelic language devotional and catechetical texts at Louvain and the ongoing collection of manuscript material in Ireland and abroad, within the Irish expatriate community, certain individuals also made landmark contributions in progressing the grand scholarly project conceived and coordinated at St Anthony's. Among these, two Ulster exiles, namely Taigo Kianon and Sorley MacDonnell, were exceptional for their composition and preservation of important Gaelic manuscripts within Irish émigré circles, particularly in Spanish Flanders. Recent research by Nolago Morilla and Michal McCraw has shown that Taigo Kianon's account of the Ulster Earl's journey from Rathmullen to Rome, which he apparently wrote in Rome around September 1609, was far from being a doleful, static, scholarly narrative of the Earl's fretful journey from, towards Rome, written for posterity. It now seems almost certain that O'Keanon's text was consciously composed to present both Irish émigré and wider continental audience, audiences with an image of the Ulster Earls, and particularly O'Neill, as pious, orthodox, self-confident and discerning Catholics, who were in tune with Counter-Reformation Rome and whose religious observance at least matched, if not indeed surpassed, that of their most devout peers in Baroque Europe. The coincidence of the Earl's visits to Italian churches with large processions and special liturgical celebrations attended by civic and ecclesiastical dignitaries points to their intense self-consciousness around the image that they were projecting. O'Keanon's portrayal of the Earls certainly chimes with the resoundingly positive image of the Irish as exemplary adherence to Counter-Reformation Roman Catholicism that was being projected in other Gaelic and Latin texts published or circulating in Irish emigre circles on the continent at the time. In the context of studying evolving Irish identities, O'Keanon's text also features revealing and self-conscious use of terminology which he, when he refers to, and the phrase is, the Irish. If, as Nolago Murrile has suggested, O'Keanon's text was indeed written for an Irish emigre readership in Europe, then the author's avoidance of the ethnic label Gaelic, his use instead of Erinach or Erini to denote all Irish people, and his use of the term Erinach and Nashun in the same context is very significant and entirely in step with contemporary accounts being produced by other scholars at the time. Other individual Irish emigres found expression for their Irish identity in different forms. Sorley MacDonnell of Dunluce in Antrim, whose involvement in an abortive rising in Ulster in 1615 precipitated his flight to Europe, became a particularly significant figure in the preservation of the intellectual heritage of the Ulster exiles on the continent. In 1626, he commissioned the compilation of a collection of Fenian ballads and Oceanic lore, the Dunyar of Finn. Rory O'Higgins has highlighted the special significance that these ballads held for the Irish military community in Spanish Flanders at the time. He believes that the soldiers and officers sang these ballads to help maintain an esprit de corps 
as they awaited the summons to participate in a Spanish-backed military campaign on Ireland. MacDonald thus ensured the capture of a particularly ephemeral but nonetheless important form of expression of collective identity that bound Irish troops together in the camps and battlefields of Europe. But more significant still, from the point of view of an insight into Irish identity formation, was MacDonald's commissioning in 1631 of a second complementary compendium of Irish bardic poems, both secular and religious, dating from the 12th to the early 17th century, which we now know as the Book of the O'Connor Don. Significantly, this later compendium contains poems composed in honour of Anglo-Norman and Old English aristocratic families, as well as Gaelic dynasties. It represented an important new departure, since material that would usually have been found in localised dunery now appeared in a single national dunera, which extolled all of Ireland's leading families, regardless of origin, thus echoing with the more general tendency in scholarly work to present the Irish as a nation. Rory O'Higgins suggests that both the Book of O'Connor Don and the Dunera Finn can be viewed as items of national literature in the new understanding of nation that was emerging amongst emigre Gaelic elites in the early 1600s. The first collection presented the Irish as a people who, like all others, had their pantheon of illustrious heroes, saints and nobility, and who had artists, art and writers through which they could celebrate them. The second collection commemorated Ireland's heroes with particular emphasis on their military history, seeking to inspire the Irish military emigre community with prophecies that they, like Fionn and the Fianna, would soon cast off the yoke of tyranny. Both, therefore, gave expression to MacSorley's particular sense of his identity as a Gaelic Irishman, temporarily exiled from his native country. He, like his compatriots, drew pride, inspiration and, insulation, uh, and con- consolation rather, from his Irish heritage, while he awaited a triumphant return home and sought to construct and harness this broadly defined Irish heritage in order to unify elements within the entire Irish emigre population and hasten the realisation of that shared ultimate goal. So to conclude, as I hope this paper has shown, the various ways in which emigres from late Tudor and early Stuart Ireland fashioned their Irish identity in the early decades of the 17th century by fostering a common awareness of membership of a unique, albeit diverse, community was very consciously based more so on geographical origin and religious identity than on the far more contentious issues of culture and ethnicity. Thank you for your attention. We hope you enjoyed this HistoryHope.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the HistoryHope.ie website.